Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Excess Energy Drinks and Excess Sports Nutrition, exclusively from Amway. Excess offers a collection of active and adventure products to help you energize, hydrate, strengthen, and recover. Follow us on Instagram at Excess Nation. It's inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports, the college football podcast that gives fans the inside scoop on who's moving up, who's moving down, and what's happening with all the big news of the week. Dan Wolken and Paul Meyerberg will take you through this week's poll, interview coaches, and break down the sport like nobody else. Starting now. And welcome back to the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast presented by USA Today Sports. First podcast of 2021. I'm Dan Walken from USA Today Sports, joined by Paul Meyerberg, as always. Later on in today's show, Todd Berry, the executive director of the American Football Coaches Association, will join us to just kind of give us a little bit of a state of the union of college football and college coaching as we get to the end of the 2020 season, go into 2021. It's going to be a Really massive year of changes for college sports generally, and a lot of it will impact college football. We're still in the middle of the pandemic and how that's going to affect everything. So good stuff from Todd Berry coming up. But, Paul, you have returned from New Orleans. I have returned from Dallas where we watched some college football playoff semifinals. First of all, let me just say it was a surreal experience for me to be at AT&T Stadium in Dallas. And, you know, they're trying to make it seem like the Rose Bowl. And it's just not the Rose Bowl. Like, they had the hand sanitizers. Did you see uh, on Twitter people posting pictures of the Rose Bowl branded hand sanitizers they put in front of each media seat? No, I didn't see that. Um, No, I did not. That's great, though. I mean, it's a little bit – I don't know what the word would be, campy. But, uh, yeah, that's nice. Whatever it takes. They had like the people working for the bowl or working for uh, the college football playoff or running around in these quarter zip pullovers that had like the cotton logo and the rose logo like together. It's really necessary. <laughs> I mean, that's funny. Uh, you know, it just, so it, it's not the Rose bowl. Uh, there was no sunset. You couldn't really see a sunset. It was a crappy day of weather, but, uh, I, I would say that between the two of us, you saw the more uh, interesting football game. Yeah, for sure. I mean, based off what we expected uh, from Alabama, Notre Dame, that, that pretty much played along those lines. Um, though maybe the, the final margin was a little bit surprising. You know, Ohio State, Clemson, I think, took a lot of people by surprise. I don't – we we spoke for months about when is the Ohio State team we expect, when does that group show up. And they showed up in a major way in the second quarter. And they look, we all remember LSU last year. Um, Clemson felt, to me, I thought that team was more competitive against LSU than against Ohio State. Ohio State in that second quarter made Clemson look like a team I don't think we had seen since 2014, 2013. Unprepared, completely overwhelmed, and, and not ready for that moment. And I put that a bit on Dabo because – um, if you guys remember the game, they, they ran off five straight touchdowns in the second quarter. Dabo said afterwards, uh, I could sense the momentum shifting. I knew that we were needing to to come back and, and hit them with another blow. But uh, two times in that period, and especially on the second one, which was more surprising to me, he punts fourth and two, fourth and three. I know it's from his own 40s, but you felt the game slipping away at 21-14, 28-14, to punt away in both those situations and then Ohio State go up 35-14 at halftime, I thought was a failure of leadership. So surprising to me on a lot of different levels. Not sure we'll talk about the game more, but that's what stood out to me from the start. Well, especially when you've got Trevor Lawrence, who is not only the best quarterback in college football, supposedly, but is also a great runner. You know, those fourth and two, fourth and three situations – you have to trust him that he can get a first down there. And obviously your defense is struggling badly. 
like we had said before, the question about Ohio State had nothing to do with talent. It was not about whether their players were good enough. In fact, I think a lot of people would have looked at the two teams and said that overall Ohio State has better players than, than Clemson from, from top to bottom. But yeah. the, the problem with Ohio State was just they had not shown it. And we talked about all the reasons, that lack of continuity, big COVID outbreak, uh, not having momentum from week to week, only having seven games and uh, not really – getting the opportunity to work out some of the kinks. And, and so I was pretty strident coming into the game. Like, is, is this going to really be the day that it all clicks into gear for Ohio state that they play their best football at this moment when they just haven't had that kind of season where they are building toward that. I didn't think they could do it, but they did. And they did it in a, in a major way. And, you know, Justin Fields, who we talked about is potentially slipping on draft boards. He, he made a living on the deep ball. I mean, they threw deep ball after deep ball after deep ball. And I don't know if Clemson wasn't ready for it or or they're just, their personnel wasn't, uh, wasn't good enough, but I thought Ohio state made it look very, very easy. Yeah, they really, they really did make it look simple. It, it, um, from the Lawrence perspective. Yeah. I mean, I thought he played very well. He threw for 400 yards, some of it, I mean, not just some of it, a good substantial portion of it coming in the second half when the game seemed out of reach. But I thought he played up to expectations. And I think that's been the story to a degree of Clemson's entire season. The offensive line was substandard compared to the what is needed to win a national championship. Um, there was no uh, game-breaking receiver, no other skill talent that could hurt teams deep. Um, so I think those issues came to a head. Um, against Ohio State, but I, I think that you have to credit Ohio State far more than dismiss Clemson. Um, I, an incredible performance, and certainly by Fields, an incredible performance that ranks in program history. Um, I know how uh, this is something that we may try to write this week, but I don't know if enough people are talking about Ryan Day and the work that he's done. I think a, a pretty incredible job. If it took 12 days to, to manifest this performance from his team, I think that's a pretty incredible achievement and a testament to the work he's done. I mean, he's 23 and one at Ohio state and I don't know if he's getting enough fanfare for, for the way that he's done it and, and the way that he's built this offense. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of what happened with Ohio state in the 2014 playoff. We're coming into the semifinal game in new Orleans against Alabama. Alabama was seen as, as the pretty solid favorite in that game. And, you know, I think we can look back on it now and say, Oh, well, you know, that was the, the Blake Sims team at, at, you know, maybe that, that Alabama wasn't as good as, as we thought at the time. But I I do think that within the context of that season, Alabama had been a, a pretty dominant team and we didn't think Ohio state would be able to match up with them. And then what happened once the game started, they dominated with their running game and with their offensive line. And, you know, you look at Ohio State, like, where had Trey Sermon been all year? He'd been like a non-factor, right? And you knew they had a good offensive line, but uh, the way they dominated in the trenches in that game, both sides of the ball, Trevor Lawrence had no time to throw. And, you know, I just think it sort of makes you go back and reevaluate and and all credit to, to Ohio State but also makes me reevaluate Clemson a little bit and, and why we were so sure of them, given that they clearly did not have as good a personnel as Ohio State on the line of scrimmage. No, not at all. And, and if I look on the defensive side, um, it's so young there. You can see the makings of, a, of another fantastic – I mean, it's very hard to match up with the wilkins Farrell group, but Brzee, Murphy, those young kids up front, they're going to be monsters. I think the offensive line lack of development is, is troubling for Clemson. I mean, it really is. And this isn't going on years. They've never – Mitch Hyatt was really good, four-year starter at left tackle. But they've – truth be told, they haven't had a dominant offensive line throughout this entire thing. And I don't know if that's an issue that needs to be addressed in the bigger picture or not. But the, the most pressing, confusing thing for me is that we're looking at three straight playoff games where this defense has failed. Um, they gave a 500-plus to Ohio State. Uh, got lucky in the red zone a number of times in last year's Fiesta. Obviously got bombed by Burrow last year, and, and Fields did the same um, uh, last Friday. So th- that's a troubling, troubling trend. It really is. And I'm not saying that people have figured out Brent Venables in the least, but 
Um, I think this offseason, more so than getting DJ ready for the starting job or finding a new left tackle, right tackle, I think that's the, the biggest question mark is what happened to this defense in big games and they can they recapture that sense of invincibility or the, at least the sense of always being ready for whatever defense offense is brought to the table because um, what you're seeing recently definitely brings that thought into question. Yeah, and look – I don't know that Dabo ranking Ohio State 11th, which was obviously a big storyline and talking point going into the game. I don't know that that's the reason why Ohio State won. I don't think it is. But at the same time, I I just did not understand it. I just didn't get it. Like, look, I hear you, Dabo. You've got a thing about the teams that played fewer games and you weren't going to rank anyone in the top 10, but – I said this before when he went to bed on the night of December 19th, after the conference championship games, he knew that the likelihood the next day was that Clemson and Ohio state were going to play in the playoff. And he still did it. And you know, why, why, why even give them that Nick Saban would never do anything like that. Not in a million years. And I do think there's a little bit of an arrogance that has, has come along with Clemson's performance on the national stage the last few years that, that, you know, it's something that I think they should look at in house a little bit. I mean, Dab was a great coach, but I wrote last week a, a column about, you know, all some of the stuff he said and, and the headlines that he's generated that have been a little bit unnecessary. Um, and I think this was part of it too. Like, like, why? Why give them that? And and clearly Ohio State felt disrespected. I thought they played that way. And, you know, I, I, I it'll be interesting to see. Dabo did, didn't back away from it in the postgame press conference. It'll be interesting to see what kind of offseason he has. Yeah, I, I from the Ohio State players, those Zoom calls after the game, um, yeah, they didn't win because they got ranked number 11, but they all knew about it. I mean, it, it played a role. So the question of why – truly an idiotic thing to do just because it made no sense. It was just so meaningless and stupid and useless. I, I really don't know where he's coming from. I understand the desire to be stand up for whatever you want to stand up for, but it was just a nonsensical thing to do. And for all the things that maybe, you know, this off season has, you know, the missteps that, you know, some people believe Dabo made this off season. This truly was, a football related error that I don't really understand from Dabo's perspective, purely football related, why he'd do that. Um, I hope to get a real answer on it because why would you do it? I'm just, I'm flabbergasted and flummoxed by it quite honestly. Yeah. There, there was no upside to it. It was all downside. Right. So yeah, it makes no sense. So what did you think of, um, I mean, from my, you were there, but just from watching the Rose bowl, um, Seemed like Alabama went on cruise control second half and it wasn't even as close as the score would indicate, but nonetheless, uh, I think for Notre Dame, a, a reasonably respectful performance. Yeah. Look, I'm sitting there in the press box and, and like everybody else, you watch the first three possessions that Alabama's has, and it's incredibly easy for them to score. You know, it's just, they get the ball. I think the second drive, they get it on the five yard line and you're just like, yeah, well, here comes a 95 yard drive. You know, you just know, like, that's what's happened. That's what's about to happen. And I think it happened in four or five plays, you know, Devonte Smith, one thing about that press box at Jerry world, you get sort of the angled view. Um, it, you're, you're not really in the end zone and you're not on the sideline. You're, you're kind of, you kind of are able to see the whole field. Cause you're, you're a little bit diagonal. diagonal yeah. yeah. And so you can see a lot of the plays develop and you can see, Devontae Smith, kind of how he's running those routes and, and how he's getting open. And if you just lock in on him and, you know, he's just, he's just a tough matchup, man. And, and uh, yeah, I thought once Alabama got the lead, you know, they had an opportunity to really put an exclamation point on it with that drive at the end of the first half and beginning of the second half where they had back-to-back possessions. And I thought maybe there they got a little bit sloppy or, or maybe just a little lack of a sense of urgency there. But the, the thing was so well in hand, like the only way Notre Dame was going to compete in that game and maybe even have a chance to win was to run off a bunch of, you know, eight minute drives, 
grind out a bunch of third downs and then get a couple stops or turnovers. And the reality is you have to be perfect for that to work. Just perfect. And they weren't perfect. Like, cause it's hard. You can't be perfect, you know, when you're playing that kind of game plan. So I didn't really gain anything out of that game in terms of an understanding of who Alabama is or, or really even what Notre Dame is. I did think it was funny after the game, you know, Brian Kelly was, was not in the mood to talk about narratives about why they are, you know, 0-2 in the playoffs or why they can't win these big games or whatever. Um, people sort of tried to go there, and, and he, 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 was not, he was not liking it. No, I saw that. And, look, what did he say? Like, hey, a lot of teams would get bombed by Clemson and Notre Dame, and Alabama. Not bombed, but, hey, look across the country. They're doing this to everybody else. Yeah. That's kind of what he said, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, look, like, that's true. That, I think there's a better way to frame his argument. And I, and I think it, from his perspective, Kelly is not, he, he does this all the time. It's like, he doesn't, he, he doesn't like take a breath before he has these press conferences, which doesn't make any sense. He's been doing this for under this spotlight for like a decade. So that's weird to me, but a better way to phrase that um, without saying, Hey, I wish you guys would be more positive. I wish our local guys would say we had a good year is to say, look, there's 127 teams in competition this year, 130 normally. Um, I hope that you guys as the media and fans listening understand how hard it is to get to this point. So instead of saying, Hey, like it happens to everybody. I mean, it wouldn't be braggadocio to be like, we got to this point. It's a hell of an achievement. I mean, cause it is, it's really hard to get to the playoff and they've gotten there twice in a few years. So I think that's the argument he was making. And I get that. I think it's a good argument to make. Uh, but as usual, he just went about it the wrong way. He just does this all the time. And I don't know if he's getting bad advice or what, but, he, uh, he really didn't make his point the best way that he could have, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think most of what he said is, is accurate. I, like there's nothing fundamentally wrong with Notre Dame's program. And I, I do understand that when people sort of ask those types of questions, there's an implication that there's something wrong. And I don't think they're, they're doing anything wrong. I just think they're just a little bit, they're a little bit not as good as, as those teams, you know, and, that's, I don't know how you change that. It's very hard and it's going to, it takes just the right amount of, of, of circumstances and luck. And, you know, I also think Notre Dame, Ian book has had a good career, but he's not a great, great quarterback, you know? And I think maybe if they had a truly great quarterback, that there is a way that they could, they could close that gap a little bit, uh, but that, that they just don't have it. And and I don't know anything about their recruiting or who they've got waiting in the wings. Is that, is that even a possibility in the next few years? Yeah, they've got a kid waiting up or coming up named uh, Pine, who I met uh, a couple of years ago in Frisco for the uh, Elite 11. Um, good talent. You saw him get on the field for a snap or two, I think, um, at the Rose. Good talent. Uh, probably, a, I mean, definitely a higher ceiling than book, but look, um, uh, you, you, you said the point I was going to make basically, which is that Notre Dame for all its recruiting acumen and ability, you're just not going to get for a number of reasons. Uh, you're not going to compile a roster that gets off a bus and looks at Alabama and, and strikes fear into their hearts. I mean, you're just not going to get that roster to match up with Alabama, Ohio state and Clemson, you know, you'll match up with almost everyone else, but not even Clemson, Alabama, Ohio state, because they're heads and shoulders above the rest. So yeah, the missing piece is like the one guy generational decade talent who steps in and, and carries them. And that's probably, as we've seen at quarterback, um, I don't know if that guy is on the roster, but that's how you beat Alabama and win a national championship. You get a legendary player who, you know, lights up the record book like a Brady Quinn and, and carries you to a national championship because just relying on you to be better than Alabama as a whole, like Kelly said, no one else is. So why would Notre Dame be? The other thing that has emerged from bowl season and, and it relates a little bit into Notre Dame and Clemson is, is the ACC. I mean, it's just been a disastrous bowl season for the ACC. They had zero wins. I think it was zero and six. And obviously some of those teams Pitt and your Boston college and some others just, they didn't play uh, and they could have and, and didn't. And so I, I, every year I try to not make too big of a deal about what conference bowl records are, because I don't think it's all that meaningful, 
But in this case, uh, you know, is there something that the ACC needs to be concerned about and to change going into this new era where uh, Jim Phillips is, is going to be the new commissioner for uh, he's been at Northwestern for a long time as the athletic director. He's, he's now going to be the commissioner replacing John Swafford. You know, I think it, it, it sort of frames as you transition from one era to the next, it sort of frames ACC football as this entity that, um, you know, is, is, is a little bit in trouble. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. I don't, like I try not to extrapolate too much over one bowl season, just like we don't extrapolate off, off of one Saturday during non-conference play or something. But yeah, it's, it's a, to not win one and not just not win one, like you made the argument that, Hey, like Pitt and BC weren't playing. That makes it worse because you really had every single ranked team in the ACC in competition and they lost every single time. And they lost um, in NC state's case to a team that uh, was seemingly inferior throughout the entire season. For North Carolina, you lose a, a major bowl against AM, had a shot in the fourth quarter. Uh, Notre Dame, Clemson get beat up if we're going to count the Irish. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a it's a bad situation. I, I don't think it's going to trickle into 2021. But um, we know because it happened to the Pac-12 and uh, before Urban got to the Big Ten, to the Big Ten, and and those storylines and subplots, they, they grab a hole. If you have two or three bad bowl seasons in a row, you don't win a playoff game uh, – you know, you get bombed in the semis, um, that starts to stick. So I think looking ahead, I, that's a concern, but I don't think they should sweat it going into 2021. They'll have a couple teams in the preseason top 25. Yeah. And I, I thought North Carolina gave a decent accounting of themselves in the, in the orange bowl. They didn't win the game, but I, they were right there with AM. I thought so. Uh, certainly next going into next year, they're going to be a team to, to, to watch very, very closely. Um, so, the morning after the semifinal games, I was sort of anticipating uh, all being quiet uh, in college football. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Texas fires Tom Herman. And um, look, I, I, it would be disingenuous of me to say that this was a huge surprise because if you had asked me, you know, f- five weeks ago, I would have thought Texas was going to fire Tom Herman, but then the whole urban Meyer pursuit happens. And, um, and there's, uh, you know, there's all the back channel stuff and they know they can't get him. So they put out a statement that was sort of a lukewarm endorsement of Tom Herman, Crystal Conte, the athletic director told our colleagues at the Austin American Statesman just flat out. He was coming back in 2021. And then, uh, all of a sudden the statement comes out that, that Tom Herman is gone. And within minutes word starts to leak around college football, that it's going to be Steve Sarkeesian who takes over for him. So uh, this is a very expensive thing for Texas, about a $25 million deal to get rid of Tom Herman. Right. Uh, is yeah, that well, counting Sark? Well, it, it includes, yeah, that that's getting rid of the former staff and then when you add in Sark, you, you add on top of that, uh, but you'd be paying that. You'd be paying that anyway. So, sure. uh, you know, so it's about a $25 million deal. Look, uh, I, I think we could debate whether from a football standpoint or a, from a value standpoint, it's worth that kind of money to go get Steve Sarkeesian, but clearly Texas had just had it with Tom Herman did not want to prolong the inevitable uh, let me let you in on a little secret. Tom Herman was not well liked there at all. No. Um, I, like the minute it happened. Um, well, no, not the minute, but you go back even to when it, we thought it might happen back in December. Um, as you said, as, as we talked about many times, um, the personalities just didn't work. And if you're not going to win in a major way, um, I don't know how that relationship was going to survive, how ugly it would have been in 2021 between the two of them or between Herman and the entire administration. Um, so almost like a bandaid, you're glad it got ripped right off. But uh, you know what? The truth is he didn't win enough to, to justify and live with that sort of dynamic. And that should be a lesson to a lot of guys, maybe even to a Dan Mullen. You can win even more than Herman, but if you're not getting it done personality wise and fitting the culture, eventually it's going to get tired out. So that's a takeaway for me. 
Yeah, I think that's becoming more important in some of these athletic departments, maybe more than ever, especially with the COVID stuff and, you know, the fact that people have had to take pay cuts and people are cutting sports. Like you do have to sort of be a team player uh, on some level, you know, and, and if you're not, you better be at the top, top, top of the game, you know, in Texas under Herman, like they, they made some progress. Like they got better than they were under Charlie strong, but they were always in these close games. They were always, you know, duking it out with Kansas state and TCU and Iowa state. And, you know, you, you play enough one score games, the law of averages is you're going to lose some of them, you know, and, and what that that's the biggest sin for Tom Herman is he never got Texas good enough to the point where, that if those teams are, are beating you, it's a big upset. And I think that's, that's what Sark's got to do. And like, we'll see about Sark. Sark, great guy. Um, has done a tremendous job with that Alabama offense, clearly, but it's Alabama and he's getting the best of the best of the best. And he's able to focus just on the offense and, like it's been fine, but Sark's not a, a unknown commodity here. He was a head coach at Washington who, you know, did okay. And he was a head coach at USC who did okay, but not good enough for USC. Even without the drinking stuff, he was not on track to do good enough at USC. So well, I, I look, I, I give the guy credit for getting his life in order. I'm sure he's learned a lot. I'm certainly he can be better than he was, but I don't think this is some slam dunk. No, uh, I, I do want to echo that point. I think it's a, it's a success story um, to come back the way he has in six years. I, I think that's really impressive of him. And if you're just a normal person or you're a coach or whatever, and you see that and you're dealing with whatever on your own, I think you take motivation and, and a lesson from that. I think that's great. Um, yeah, look, like Herman's – issue was, I believe, just based off those close games, a failure to motivate and to impel guys to give a higher effort and to not overlook teams and to always be focused. Um, that's an intriguing part of Sarkeesian's tenure because what do you learn from Saban, right? Attention to detail, focus, um, you know, staying in the here and now and, and, and not looking ahead. And if that's a lesson he takes away from Alabama to go with his offense, to go with the attractiveness of playing at Texas, that's really interesting. But yeah, he's a wild card, not because of his past, but because he's never won at a high level or at a big time level um, that he's been a power five head coach is a bonus. But what about Washington and USC makes you think that he can lift Texas to a national title? Uh, look, all due respect to him. There's nothing there that makes you think that offensive scheme uh, time in Alabama. Yeah. But history as a head coach. Uh, Herman had achieved more than, than Sark. Yeah. And I thought, um, you know, I thought Pete Thamel at Yahoo wrote a column that was uh, good in the sense that it, it highlighted what the real issue is, which is that the Texas in a lot of ways is a place that has atrophied from the inside out. You know, that, that there's a lot of great things about Texas location and the kind of school it is and a great city and campus and all that stuff. But they, as a, as a, as a program got very fat and happy when Mac Brown was in, in his heyday and they did not invest in the program, the way other powerhouse schools did. And it's left Texas in a little bit of a vulnerable position. Like they, I, I don't know if they're going to be able to immediately fix all the stuff that that's broken there, but like they don't have the the kind of practice facility and the kind of football operations building and all the other stuff that, that, the teams they're trying to catch have they, they don't have what Texas A&M has. So mm-hmm. that that's going to be really interesting to see whether or not they can invest in that rather than just throw money at a coaching problem. Yeah. There, there are uh, inherent issues. The stuff about facilities, I think would surprise a lot of people because if you know anything about Texas and finances, I mean, this is one of the richest programs in the country, richest athletic departments in the country. So I think that would surprise a lot of people that they're below the par and, and certainly below the standard for the university. Um, those are issues. I mean, long-term issues that need to be addressed. I look ahead to just this coming year. Um, how quickly can Sark reach a roster that has, like you said, grown accustomed to a certain style in a certain way. Um, if this team is as jaded as they played and as cynical about their own leadership as, as the way they performed against inferior competition, I think that's a hell of a task that's ahead of them. 
And it's not going to be solved this by saying, Hey, we got the X's and O's to score on anybody. Um, I think there are deeper seated chemistry and, and mentality issues within the program. So um, it's a hell of a job. It's a great job. We all know that, but it's not an easy one um, at all because it's not an utter rebuild, but it's a, a place that needs to take a major step forward to get from eight, nine wins and actually win a big 12 championship. So hats off to Sark, but uh, he's got to buckle up. And the coaching carousel is, is not over. Uh, we learned on Monday morning that uh, Doc Holliday is out at Marshall. He was coming up to the end of his contract and they basically just did not renew him. And, you know, this is a political issue. It goes all the way up to, to the governor of the state and they had wanted him out for quite a while. We had doc on the show earlier this year and when they were undefeated and I mean, the guy was just named conference USA coach of the year. Uh, so, you know, I don't get it. I don't really get it. Uh, but you do you Marshall and we'll see what happens. Um, and you could have guys go to the NFL, you know, the NFL coaching stuff is, is now just starting to heat up with the regular season ending. Uh, I would be surprised if there's not a coach or two from college who, who is not an NFL head coach in the next couple of weeks. So just uh, hold on to your hats. Uh, yeah. And we're going to talk to Todd Berry with the AFCA and he's going to, because we pre-recorded that part of our, our, our show, um, he lays it out and says that uh, some of the things happening in college football in the next year, name, name, image, and likeness, recruiting rules, transfer rules. Um, he, he phrased it as saying a bunch of guys are going to look at the NFL this year <clears throat> because of the uncertainty of what lies ahead. So like you said, that, that uh, could change and, and make this kind of quiet and docile coaching cycle relative to normal really explode in a major way. So keep an eye on that. All right, let's get to that interview with Todd Berry, the executive director of the AFCA, and then we'll come back and preview the national championship game. Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. Today's athletes and coaches look for any edge they can find. Go to the edge and beyond with Excess Muscle Multiplier, exclusively from Amway. It's a new way to fuel your muscles, containing the only essential amino acid blend patented to help build lean muscle when used in combination with regular strength training and a healthy diet. Not only is this a superior blend of EAAs, it's naturally flavored and free of dairy, sugar, gluten, and GMOs. Use Excess Muscle Multiplier every day, and especially before, during, or after a workout to go beyond the edge. Follow us on Instagram at Excess Nation to experience more. And stay tuned after the podcast to learn about the latest cutting-edge essential amino acid technology and how it's being used with professional mountain biker Mark Matthews. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, back to Inside the Amway Coaches Poll with Dan Wolken and Paul Meyerberg. And pleased to be joined on this week's Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast is the Executive Director of the American Football Coaches Association, Todd Berry. Uh, Todd, you've got the convention coming up. That's a huge event for the AFCA, but obviously with COVID this year, it's going to be a little different. Uh, What's the convention going to look like? I mean, I've been to the convention before. It's typically, you know, thousands of coaches everywhere, all over, take over some town. But uh, this year, I guess it's going to be a lot of virtual stuff, right? That's correct, actually. You know, it's um, this has certainly been a unique year, and I, it, I'd be remiss if right now I didn't really congratulate congratulate our our student athletes and our coaches. Um, you know, I, obviously, I have an opportunity to talk with coaches every week, and just what they went through, and what these yeah. players went through, and what they sacrificed this season, it's just been extraordinary. And I also like to probably think football oversight. You know, I'm on multiple NCAA committees, but for us to pull this off and to do it as safely as we did it. And I'm just very, very proud of what happened there, but our convention will be virtual this year. As you mentioned, thousands of coaches generally show up in person. I think we had 432 events last year at our convention. And so we're going to try to do as much of it as we can virtually this year. And we actually kind of start this next week. We've actually split it into two weeks uh, so that we have our business meetings this next week to talk about NCAA legislation and so on, knowing that the NCAA convention is the following week, which is our scheduled time frame to do our educational events for our coaches. 
Uh, let's go into a bit what you mentioned before about the pulling off this season and how it seemed like a pretty incredible achievement. Was there a point? I wouldn't know what time in the summer, but at, at some point before September where you had concerns that the year would be played at all or, or that we'd be able to complete it if we did start the season? Yeah, I think everybody, um, you know, from the get-go, we started this in March, started meeting weekly, talked with our coaches about mitigation protocols. We learned as we went, quite honestly, in what was working and what wasn't working. Uh, we shared that amongst our coaches and and. So there was just a tremendous amount of communication, but certainly I think as we got ready to start preseason camp, uh, the one thing out of, you know, we modeled out, I think about everything that could be modeled out. If aliens landed on the moon, we were ready for them. But the one thing that we never modeled out was that quite honestly, that the, the, the FBS conferences would do different things. I think everyone felt like, you know, there in July that we would all do the same things. And that there would be, you know, kind of one decision on everything. And obviously that didn't come to fruition. And that created some consternation, obviously, and, and, and made for, a, quite honestly, a very unique and interesting season. Yeah, Tyler, coaches at this level, at the FBS level, yeah, typically they're used to being in control of uh, everything that goes on around them. And this year, a lot of times coaches had, had no control. Over, over what was happening with their roster, what was happening with protocols. It just what was that transition like? How did it, uh, you know, how, how did your constituents deal with just a year that was so unique and, and so much the antithesis of, of the way that they typically try to run their programs? Yeah, it is interesting because, as you mentioned, it does kind of go against the grain, I think, of what coaches do. I mean, we – you know, traditionally, we over-prepare for everything in the sense that we don't want any surprises on game day. We don't want to see any surprises out there at practice. And if there is a surprise, then generally uh, you have a plan A, plan B, plan C to, to, to be able to handle it. This year, that, that was really impossible. I mean, I would talk with coaches during the week, and they'd say, Todd, you wouldn't believe what I had to do today. I saw Jimbo Fisher take off running across the field and pull a hamstring – <laughs> and I thought, how many times have I heard coaches say this week, golly, I'm so sore because I had to play scout team running back this week because we <laughs> had no running backs to be able to service the defense or offensive linemen that had never played defensive line in their life all of a sudden having to play second team defensive line that week and knowing that you were going to have to really modify your game plan to adjust for these guys that had never even played the position before. So it was very, very unique. But again, I think our coaches rolled with it. I think we learned an awful lot. I've heard multiple coaches kind of talk about how this season is really going to change the way that they move forward in a lot of different areas. And, you know, that's, that's what you do is you, you have experiences and you learn from them. You know, Todd, I wrote about the idea of, of teams carrying some factors forward in 2021 when things get back to normal. I'm curious what you heard specifically, if anything, about um, – things that coaches liked are things that they thought were beneficial that could be useful when we get back to normal. Well, yeah, I read your article and I, and I, you were spot on, I think in the sense that the virtual recruiting, I think from day one has, has been a major success. And there's some things that we probably need to look at in terms of some regulations to kind of modify a few things uh, because obviously that was an unregulated space. But I, I think one of the probably the, the biggest difficulties in our profession right now from a coaching standpoint is there is never any time off. There's never an opportunity to see your family. There's never even much time to really spend with your own team because you, 52 weeks out of the year, you're recruiting and it never stops. And we were spending so much time on the road away from, you know, our families and um, our own players that we should be spending time with in, in pursuit of the next player that I think the virtual recruiting space is, is going to lift and move forward. We're going to have significant conversations this next week about, you know, what we would like to keep, uh, what we think needs to be regulated. Uh, but I would also suggest that there's some things from a practice standpoint that our, that our coaches learn too uh, in this process. Cause obviously where we're going through uh, many games with not the same number of players that you normally have to practice with. And so you had to be pretty creative in that and not wear your players out and be very, very efficient with everything that you do. Every drill had to have multiple purposes. It couldn't just serve one purpose. And I think that I've heard a lot of coaches 
you know, talk to that too, how that's going to really change their mentality moving forward. And Todd, to, to just to be clear, like if let's say, for example, you're able to virtually recruit and have an extra 40 days home as a staff in that evaluation period in the spring, let's say that some variation of that occurred, that would represent a profound change in the lifestyle of, of a college football coach. Am I right? By adding in yeah, three or four weeks of time a year where they'd be home. Yeah, there's no question the virtual recruiting will, will impact, I, I think, a lot of things. Just the opportunity to stay with your own players, the opportunity to save some money, quite honestly. Now, we're still going to want to evaluate. There, it's still very, very difficult regardless to be able to say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to invest a significant amount of money and amount of time in recruiting a player and never have seen the player before. So, obviously, we would like a little bit of evaluation. We'd certainly like to have a – you know, an opportunity to contact the parents and so on uh, in, in person. But we do think that there's an awful lot of things that we can modify and adjust that will uh, save an awful lot of time. Uh, it'll allow, I think, for a quality of life for our coaches uh, and even for those prospective student athletes who sometimes can get very much bogged down in the, in the number of visits they might have normally received in a, you know, in a normal year. Um, but I, I think uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this next week as we have these conversations with amongst our coaches uh, about what they feel is the appropriate way to move forward. And I think the NCAA is going to be uh, very open to listening to some of those things. On January 11th, when the trophy gets handed out to either Alabama or Ohio State, there's going to be a lot of people in, in college football and college athletics generally who, who just – have a big exhale moment because this has been just an unbelievable uh, 10 months. But at the same time, you know, 2021, just because we're ending the season does not mean that, that the rest of 2021 is going to be a picnic. I mean, we've still got issues to work through here. COVID is not over from a football oversight standpoint, from an AFCA standpoint, what, what do you think the next year is going to look like uh, because, you know, we still have spring practice and trying to figure that out. Uh, you still got testing and vaccines. And w- what, what are some of the issues that, that you're going to need to dig in on now once the season ends as, as you move forward into a different set of, of, of concerns for, for the next, you know, the next year? Yeah, I, I think we proved throughout the course of this season um, that, that, we learned, that we learned an awful lot and we proved that we could make it happen. And I, and I think that as we kind of continue forward into this next semester, this spring semester, that you're going to see our FBS programs continue along that vein. We recognize that this isn't going away right now, and just because we made it through the season means that we can get careless. We, we need to continue the, the protocols that we've learned. And quite honestly, I think that, you know, the medical community has learned an awful lot in the, in the process of what we've done. Um, but we've also, Dan, we, you know, we've got FCS that's getting ready to start our FCS yeah. level. Many of our Division II programs are going to be playing this spring. And so we'll spend significant time again this next week talking to those FCS head coaches, those Division II head coaches about all the mitigation protocols that were highly successful. Yeah, I mean, just to follow up on that real quick, uh, we, we've not talked a lot about FCS and what's going to happen there. But uh, way back, you know, in the summer, FCS generally moved to, to spring. Uh, and I think there's been some skepticism about whether a lot of those schools would actually follow through and play. Is, is your understanding that, that most of those schools are going to play a season? Yeah, I, I think that there's certainly some opportunities for some teams to pull away from that. But in the same sense, too, I know many are very committed to it. I think for the same reasons that basically FBS went forward is, you know, that the players want to play. They have just this very limited amount of time to play college football, very few games. It's not like baseball or basketball where you're going to get 30 or 40 games in in a season. This is a, you know, a very minute number of opportunities, and they just want to have the opportunity to, to, to showcase their abilities and be able to play a game that they love and they, they spend so much time working and are committed to. And, again, for our FBS group that just finished – and we had a few FCS programs that actually played also, but, you know, the, the, the sacrifices that these student-athletes made to play this year was extraordinary. Todd, one thing I, I think feels uncertain to me, and, and maybe coaches feel the same way, is how you're going to want to balance 
your scholarship limits with seniors coming back and how are you going to be able to manage your roster maybe into 2022 or 23? Any thoughts from the AFC at this point about how that's going to look or how you like it to look? Yeah, Paul, that, that's probably the most difficult thing, I think, for all of our coaches right now is roster management. Uh, certainly, we experienced an awful lot of that through injuries, COVID protocols, targeting, but also opt-outs this year. And I would suggest that as we start moving forward, um, the name, image, and likeness, the one-time transfer, which will be voted on here in a couple weeks, uh, doesn't mean that it's passed, but it will be voted on a couple weeks here from the NCAA standpoint. I think most of our coaches recognize this is really going to change how you recruit. I would suggest that many of our FBS coaches have, have suggested that they're going to hold 10, 12 scholarships back. Uh, and, and so you're not going to be as active in recruiting high school players uh, because the transfer portal will be uh, – that's going to be alive. If you start just thinking about what a player is going to be thinking at the end of the spring, let's say that May 1st is that deadline that's been suggested, that they can enter the portal for the one-time transfer. Uh, I would suggest that there's going to be a good portion of those young people that are going to enter the portal every year. They're going to see if they can get a better name, image, and likeness deal someplace else. And the idea, I think, that really there's only a one-time transfer. We've already seen kind of how the waiver process has worked and how very difficult that is for the NCAA to be able, uh, you know, a player just, they know what to say. They know how to go about the process. And, and the waiver process is still going to be out there. And so let's just say that May 1st, you've got three-quarters of your team that's in the portal looking to see what happens. Um, you're you're going to have basically the whole summer as a summer of free agency unregulated free agency. You're never going to know until August the 1st when you start practice who's going to be on your team. And so it, this is going to be very difficult. You've got, as you mentioned, you've got a whole group of, of young people that have another year of eligibility. Uh, you have the financial constraints of your university in relation to being able to pay potentially more than the number of scholarships that you've traditionally done. And so there's a lot of things that are um, – that are going to be out there. I don't think there's any question. I don't think any coach would disagree with me privately anyway, that uh, this, what we're getting ready to see this spring will be the most tumultuous spring in our, in, in our memory uh, as coaches or players. And again, the majority of us uh, had a, had a chance to, to play as collegiate athletes. We played the game. We know what it's like to be a student athlete. And that's part of the reason why we got into coaching was because we, uh, we recognized all the great attributes that the game teaches and how much we grew as individuals from it. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we want to maintain that, uh, and obviously not turn this into a uh, semi-pro ball or the NFL, or, and obviously it can't be that because there's no contracts, there's no uh, regulations uh, that can be enforced anyway. And so it, it's probably going to be a very, very interesting year, and our coaches, quite honestly, are tremendously concerned about that. I I would even suggest that we're going to have a few of them who have never been interested in going to the NFL decide to go to the NFL because you, know, you have um, regulations that are controlling things. Yeah, all, all the things you're talking about are, are going to be brought up at the NCAA convention, which is coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, this is a huge year for, for college sports, for college football, with the name, image, and likeness, uh, with the one-time transfer. Is, is your role at this point – uh, to advocate or to educate in terms of, you know, kind of how coaches are going to have to go about this, or are you actively involved in, in trying to shape what the legislation looks like? I think it's correct. Quite honestly, Dan, on all fronts. Um, I, I've, I have spoke to the federal legislators who are going to be the ones that actually end up doing whatever they decide to do in relation to the name, image, and likeness, right? Because we recognize that all these states can have different laws and rules the NCAA has no power of being able to control what name, image, and likeness, quite honestly, would even look like because they can't enforce anything. Um, and so it's going to have to become federal. And so I, I've been a part of those discussions. Um, obviously, this next week, whatever our coaches decide, that's what I will advocate for. Uh, there is, obviously, as you, would, as you would suspect, as anybody would suspect that's rational about this, there is a public stance that our coaches have to take. Uh, in relation to making sure they can continue to recruit and so on. But there's a private stance to where you know, they're very, very concerned about this. You know, one of the things I think that's interesting 
is, you know, we had a program back in late seventies, early eighties that was given the death penalty. And, and they were basically doing all the things that are now going to be allowed to be able to do <laughs> Right. So we don't need a crystal ball to kind of figure out what this is probably going to look like. We, we already know what this is going to look like. And I think that's where the concerns are is I, I think our coaches would be much more comfortable with this. If we, we knew what the, what the regulations were going to be, how are you going to enforce these things? We don't see that happening at this point in time. And so it's going to be very, very hard for me to advocate for it whenever we recognize how much this is going to change collegiate athletics. And, and just to be clear, what you're talking about is the idea that the NCAA has put forth that any name, image, and likeness deals would not be tied to recruiting. But you and I know as, as just people who are in this business that how you separate that out and how you – regulate and monitor what is and what is not tied to recruiting. That's, that's where the, that's where the difficulty lies. Yeah, it is. And I'll give you two quick examples. And I've heard multiple coaches obviously call and suggest that the student athletes and their parents are already asking, what are you going to do for me from name, image, and likeness standpoint? And then I had one coach that even said, Todd, I've got a problem because I got a booster that's already started something. He's actually (laughs) recruiting a kid that we're not even interested in. But he's a kid, and the kid wants to play at, you know, Blank University, Barry University. And and so, consequently, he's doing that. And I, I think that this idea, you know, uh, products and services, they have a set price. They have a going price. And, and those have, that's already been ruled, you know, through the courts in relation to what those prices are. The problem with name, image, and likeness is there is no price. And I, I would suggest that just like athletic scholarships, you know, at one point in time when they first came about, it was because whoever ended up making the starting team got the scholarship. And then someone decided, you know what, let's go out and let's recruit better players to come by giving them a scholarship before they ever show up on campus. They didn't have to prove it once they got there. They basically could just show up. We all recognize that the name, image, and likeness piece, as you mentioned, that that is going to be negotiated by those players' agents and, um, you know, even even with coaches, maybe not even knowing about what is going on behind the scenes. And that was one of the difficulties, obviously, in that program that I mentioned that received the death penalty was there was an awful lot of things that were really out of control. And uh, again, we might feel a lot more comfortable with this as coaches if we recognize what those rules and regulations are. But there's nothing that I've seen that's that we've got a lot of utopian ideas with no reality that allows for that to be to, to work, to be functional. Any thoughts on championship game, Todd, Alabama, Ohio State? What's your prediction? What do you think is going to happen? Well, you know, it's, it's two great coaches. Uh, I have just got a tremendous amount of respect. As uh, Dan and I were talking offline, it's, it's so interesting for me, especially this year, is I've had a chance to watch so many games on television. Generally, I would be going to some games and maybe miss a few. And so you've had this opportunity to kind of look at these, this whole season and watch teams. And you've got just tremendous coaches. Obviously, you have great athletes. Ohio State is, I think, uh, for uh, all the individuals out there that are uh, maybe picking Alabama. Uh, and I under- certainly can understand that. Uh, just great coaches, great talent. But Ohio State's one of those programs that can match both of those things. And, uh, and so I, I look forward to a great game. I, and congratulations to you, Paul. I think you won this year the annual pick that didn't you not for the regular season and, and through the bowl games? Pretty sure I did. Um, yeah, I, I know I didn't. Sure I, that's, that's all yeah, I, I, I know. Dan did not. Uh, we were it came down to the wire. Dan pretty was sure at it, this year but it, was, it was hard, as you well know. I mean, our poll this year, from our coach's standpoint, not having the same number of games. Even, I mean, if, if you'd looked at the start of the season, you'd said the Big 12 can't play at all because they got beat by three Sunbelt teams and then turn around at the end of the season and you look at the Big 12 and the bowl games and without the cross-conference games, it was so difficult this year, I think, for our coaches to be able to measure, you know, how, how much difference is there in, you know, between these teams because you never had a chance to see them cross-conference very many games like that. And yeah, so it was a hard year to, to, to pick games. It was a hard year to, uh, you know, if you were a betting person, uh, to try to bet a game right now, not knowing who's, who's playing, who's not playing every week. I mean, it was just really, really difficult. And I appreciate all the coaches that actually participated in our poll because 
I've done that before and I recognize how hard it is. And I did it this year, even though I'm, I, obviously I'm not a poll voter, but I, I still just try to, uh, in my own mind, because I did it for so many years, I try to do it. And it was so difficult this year uh, to yeah. try to make decisions. And you did have to kind of, you know, put down some principles about how you were going to rank them because there was no other way to do it. Yeah. On the podcast every week, we, at least early in the season, you know, there were certainly some, some times where we had to give some caveats about where teams were ranked like Ohio state, you know, at one point was, it fell pretty far down because some people ranked them, some people didn't, you know, so until they started playing. So uh, good, good work though, certainly uh, in the, at the end of the day, it all came out in the wash. So uh, Todd, congratulations on, on pulling off the season. Uh, certainly glad to have you on the podcast and, and certainly thanks to the AFCA for, for the support of, uh, of this podcast and, and the Amway Coaches Poll. My pleasure, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for doing all the good work that you do in, in covering college football. We appreciate that also. And, and we look forward to uh, just a, a great championship game first and then obviously some spring seasons, but also let's have a great 2021 season. I think that's where everybody's <laughs> pointed to right now. All right. Thanks, Todd. Talk to you soon. My pleasure. All right. Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. Thanks very much to Todd Berry from the AFCA for joining us on the show. So, Paul, we got one more game in the college football season, the national championship, the seventh college football playoff national title, but the first meeting between Alabama and Ohio State in the title game. And, you know, I do think that the country is probably a little bit more excited about this than they would have been for Alabama Clemson, because this feels a little bit fresher, I think. And given the way that Ohio state played in the sugar bowl, I do think that more people will give them a chance than maybe we, we would have thought uh, a while ago. I, I certainly, it certainly changed my perception of what they could do. Yeah, rightfully so. I think if they had won like 17, 13, 2017, I I don't know if a lot of people would say Ohio State could win this game, but the nature of that win really changes the dynamic. You wrote uh, coming out of that uh, Friday night that, hey, we've got a lot of uncertainty about this game. And I I think that's really true. And it makes it really, really hard to predict. Um, And not to mention, look, the the TV ratings and viewership uh, make this point and illustrate it that people were getting tired of Alabama Clemson. And to be quite honest, all due respect to the program, people were just getting tired of Clemson. <laughs> um, it, it's not a national brand. It's just not, not to Ohio state's caliber. Everyone knows Clemson. They're a household name, but if you're in California or, or you're in Boise, you're not saying, Hey, I got to tune in and watch Clemson tonight. You're just not all due respect. And this is different. And um, I wrote the other day, the BCS like was a terrible system, but, it succeeded. Like you got big time teams in the championship game fairly regularly. Even when the SEC started dominating, you saw major matchups between national brands. And this is the first major matchup between national names of the playoff era. And uh, I think you'll see an uptick in numbers, uh, TV viewership and, and just overall chatter about this game because of the names involved. And also let's just be real. This is going to be a high scoring, entertaining football game. Like I'd be shocked if this is a game played in the twenties shocked, I can't see any way uh, that this game is in the twenties. I can't see any way this game is in the twenties. Um, this would be uh, far more likely to be that kind of 45, 40 game that Alabama Clemson had part one. Um, these offenses are just too good, too good to be 24, 21, 28, 24. Yeah. And this, you look at these two teams, like the skill position players, for both teams are all going to be in the NFL, all of them, you know, pretty much. Um, And, you know, I think that if there's been one sort of weakness with Alabama, it's been on the defensive side, Uh, you know, Notre Dame had some success against Alabama running the ball. Uh, I don't think Notre Dame has uh, the same type of receivers that Ohio state has. They don't have the same type of quarterback, but, you know, I think if you, if you look at maybe a game like the Florida game, that, that there is an opportunity to score on, on Alabama. And, you know, if you get into that kind of game, like I don't think it's just fait accompli that Alabama wins. Because, I, I again, I, I thought they were in control of the game against Florida the whole time, but they were only like one possession from not being in total control of it. 
And so when you play a better team than Florida, and I think Ohio State's clearly a better team, that that I could see a scenario where, you know, this is a game in the fourth quarter with seven minutes to go and Ohio State's down seven with the ball. And then you just, you see, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, like you're a tennis guy. This seems like a break-serve game um, where you like Alabama played Ole Miss and they didn't break Ole Miss's serve until late in the fourth. But once they did and got two possessions up, Ole Miss can't come back. And the same happened with Florida. Um, I don't know if that break-serve moment can come in the first half. But, yeah, if we're, we're going to be in the second half. And I think both teams or either team will be in range of the other within a possession. Um, and if they're not, it's because they've uh, one defense has been successful in forcing turnovers. I think Alabama, the, the question is, will Alabama be able to stop Ohio State's deep game? Um, and, and I think being able to score 50, 40-yard touchdown passes against Clemson is what broke Clemson's back. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's a possibility, and not just because Alabama's got better DBs than Clemson, but um, just overall sp- speed and talent in the back seven, whether Ohio State can, can hit explosive plays with that sort of ease. But even if they don't, I think Ohio State can chew up yardage and have seven, eight, nine yard or nine play drives that end up in six. So I'm excited for this one for that fact, because um, it's going to speak to the offensive revolution of college football to see this game get into the forties for the national championship. Yeah. And, you know, I think the coaching matchup as well, I mean, Nick, Nick Saban and Ryan day, you know, Ryan day has, has not been here before, but I, I thought he looked very comfortable in, in that game uh, on Saturday, I think he's going to have to be willing to take some risks. You know, we've seen Saban in championship games, take risks, uh, the famous onside kick, you know, and, and this may be the kind of game where somebody ha- has to, has to, has to do an onside kick or something like that. Um, th- that's the kind of thing that can determine a, a, a game like this is, is who's willing to, to, to take a risk or, or, you know, it's going to come down to a handful of play calls for for long touchdowns you know and and so I I think I'm gonna pick Alabama still because I just think start to finish they've been the better team they've been the best team all year long but um, you you know if if that's the real Ohio State I, I think it's gonna be really tough now here's the question that that I think looms over their performance is given how just sort of giddy they were about beating Clemson, given how much that was a landmark win for their program. Are they going to be able to get back up emotionally the way they need to for, you know, for Alabama, they walk off the field against Notre Dame. It's, it's same old, same old, you know, that that was a big, mm-hmm. big celebration for Ohio state. And now you got to go prepare for another game. Yeah. Um, so I think there's the two most interesting questions, not that this will necessarily determine the game, but the, the two important maybe factors or, or storylines going into it. One you just mentioned, um, whether this is like a floodgate opening moment for Ohio State against Clemson or just a, a strange mismatch and, and a game that got out of hand that doesn't properly represent where Ohio State is at this point. Um, because like you said, if they are that good, this is a hell of a game. Um, but from Alabama's point of view, this is the best team they played all season, you know, and this is a team that can really exploit them in a way that Ole Miss did, but more so perhaps on both sides of the ball, like Florida did, but with the, the, the added benefit of, of being even better, more talented than the Gators. So I don't know how you feel about that question, but maybe we're looking at it in a, in, in a little bit of a wrong way. You know, maybe we should be looking at it as, Hey, Alabama has not faced a team of Ohio state's caliber all year. And Ohio state just kind of did and took care of it against Clemson. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And and this is where, like, remember a couple years ago when we're out in San Jose and we're getting ready for that Alabama-Clemson game out there, and, and Alabama was a prohibitive favorite going into that game. Clemson will, seemed like a pretty big underdog. Now, you liked Clemson. You were one of the few who picked Clemson that year. But what we saw in that game was a coaching domination of the Alabama defensive staff, um, you know, that was Tosh Lupoy and, you know, some other guys who, who are not in charge anymore, but that Alabama defensive coaching staff is not like um, it's, it's, it's not a blockbuster staff. It's not what, what they had when 
Kirby Smart was the defensive coordinator and you still had Mel Tucker on staff. And it's not even what it was when Jeremy Pruitt was, was there uh, running, running their defense. You know, Pete Golding uh, is a young guy. I still think he's got a lot to prove. So could, could we, could I see a scenario where they play the game and we're looking back and we're like, man, Alabama's defensive staff just got smoked again. I could absolutely see that. Yeah. And I, I didn't think about it from just defense. I just was like closing my eyes and picturing like, I could see that in a, in in the sense of just Ohio State wins by fourteen, and we say, "Oh, this Alabama team just kind of just blew teams out and ran away from everyone else with because of their talent." And all of a sudden, they met a, a, a equal opponent and got exposed. Um, I think there's a percentage chance of that happening, um, and I think primarily because Alabama's defense has let them down and been bailed out in at least two games of the season, at least Ole Miss. And uh, and um, uh, Florida, and they're beatable on defense. They're just beatable. Uh, Ohio State can expose that. All right, you're you're almost trying to talk me into picking Ohio State, but I am going to go with Alabama, forty-five, forty-two. Yeah, I, I'm almost talking myself into Ohio State, and I got to think about this more the rest of the week. Where it stands right now, Alabama is just such a safe pick. Um, because they could outscore anyone. And, and I think if they get into a shootout, you still like them better than Ohio State. So I'm going to take Alabama, and I, and I do think it's going to be like 41-34, 41-38. Um, so I'll take them now. But when we do our picks later in the week, I'm going to, I'm going to chew on this and marinate because um, I don't think it's going to be uh, a game where Alabama is an is a unquestioned winner. Though I do think like 80% of people are going to take the tie. All right, well, I'm looking forward to getting down to South Florida. We'll see you down there, Paul, and hopefully it'll be as good of a game as we think it might be. So thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast. Thanks for your support all year long, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. This has been the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast presented by USA Today Sports, and one more game to go. You've been listening to Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform.